this will be uh, the last talk of the day in this location. Um, Vincent will talk about his um, experiences so far as a game entrepreneur. Um, recently started a company, um, and he um, well he uh, experienced some some pitfalls, managed to avoid others, and he's going to hold this talk in English. That's why my introduction is in English as well. Um, but we're all uh, very curious what you're uh, about to say. So here goes. Give it up. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, first, my apologies for doing this in English. It's not just because I want to be uh, extremely polite for the possible non-Dutch here, um, but it's after you know doing this stuff in the U.S. for so long, it's easier for me to go through my story in English. You can ask me questions in Dutch, and I will respond in Dutch, of course. Um, so, anyways, uh, my presentation more is about. Um, the crazy experiences we had over the last five years trying to, you know, for, especially from uh, my own point of view as I'm the founder, founder of Isotex, in um, what kind of pitfalls we got, what kinds of crazy adventures we went through over the last five years. We had a bit of an extraordinary path um, uh, compared to the standard uh, startup story, um, which kind of fits the company. We're a bit strange, but, you know, it's nice. So I want to kind of break it up into first talking a little bit about introduction of where I come from and um, how and why I started the company and what the choices were that I made at the time. Then I want to talk a little bit about the formation, which I'm going to talk about the investors that I met, the American investors, and uh, what we, the projects we did together uh, during that phase. Then I want to talk about our first product that we released uh, two years ago and all the crazy things that went wrong because, uh, you know, everything that can go wrong will always go wrong. And our current flagship product, and then I want to have a little um, brief overview of all the lessons learned, I think, from, you know, from my perspective. Um, hopefully you'll enjoy yourself. I put some graphics in there from uh, our products and our uh, design team, so it's graphical. Let's see. Um, okay, so first I want to talk a little bit about uh, who we are. Um, as I mentioned before, we're a startup company. Uh, I've been working with my investors for the last five years, but we only started as a company three years ago. And um, three years ago, I started. we started making our first product. Um, we're self-funded, which is a very luxurious position, which means there's no one that is actually telling us what to do. We don't have any publishers. We don't have anybody giving us money in the, the decision-making chain is... is very small, so investors and myself, which means that we can make some very crazy right uh, turns, let me put it that way. Um, the main goal of the company is to create our own IP. Uh, Iron Grip is our universe, and we really want to, just like a Lord of the Rings or a Star Wars, we really want to build it out and, and try and create an IP where we can build a lot of games and, and grow from there. Um, okay. So, uh, as I mentioned, we're self-funded. We're also very international. Uh, most of our uh, people are in the U.S. We're about 25 to 30 people in total now. Um, Ten in Holland, uh, the rest in the U.S. There's some people from uh, Portugal, Israel, uh, we're in Romania. Um, we recently relocated two, two months ago our headquarters from Greece to, um, to Holland. Uh, I'm Dutch and I missed my home. And uh, so, basically, um, now we're here. Now, basically, I would like to explain a little bit about how we got there. Um, 
um, because it is kind of strange to have all these people working from home from all these different countries. So we left the trail uh, a mess, so to say, and we're trying to clean that right now. It's not going to be a story of all the wonderful successes that we had, but actually more of the pitfalls and the mistakes that we've made and what I think are the lessons that we learned from them. So, um, our road, so basically, I, as a kid, I was always modding games. I was always making my own additions. I was always making uh, little games, little uh, additions to games, little movies. I did all kinds of crazy stuff. And um, from then on, I finished, I tried to make a, um, I made an actual very creative project called Suana, which was a very artsy product. And I, after I uh, finished my education, which was designed for virtual theater and games on the Haku in uh, Utrecht, um, in 2004, I won the uh, Prince of Culture Prize for uh, the category New Media. Um, with the money that um, I received, let's see, oh, there you go. I started a, a modification for Half-Life 2 called Iron Grip Depression. This was deviating uh, a lot from Suanar and what I actually won the prize from. Um, but my heart was more with games, and I really wanted to try and see what I can do there. I really wanted to create new types of games using existing genres and really trying to see where we could take it. I also always wanted to create my own universe and my own world. So um, the stuff that you see here is very early on stuff that I made myself um, about six years ago. And um, what I'd like to, I'd like to, what is interesting here is that you're going to see a trajectory is that what this is is actually very crappy stuff. And um, so how it transitions into more professional um, stuff that we're using in our games. Um, basically, Angry the Oppression was, and this is a, you know, a red line through our company's history, was way too ambitious. We always tried to do too much stuff in too little time frame. And so I started um, this project with just a group of friends who, uh, who I always built mods with, and we wanted to basically conquer the world and uh, make the most awesome game on Half-Life 2, and it ended up being a very bumpy road. Oh, look at that, new images. Okay, so I'm going to skip that one. A sort of formation. So after I, I created a... Um, a mod which was called uh, CNC Holland, which is basically adding the Dutch army, which is so wonderfully big and awesome, to um, to Command and Conquer uh, EA's game, Command and Conquer Generals. Um, some investors started emailing me, and it was actually very funny because the email had all in caps letter, need advice in game, blah, blah, blah. So it almost looked like it was a Nigerian scam uh, email that I got. And by just uh, random chance, I figured, you know what, I'm just going to send a reply, and the second email I got was basically, please give me your phone number. And so, you know, it was even more red flags going up saying, okay, this is a Nigerian scam, and I was like, no, you can add me on Skype and we can chat there. And then at some point, just I took the chance again, sent my phone number, and uh, the rest is history. Now, um, the investors, uh, they were basically playing a lot of Command & Conquer Generals, and they really enjoyed our mod, and um, they really wanted to make us to make them two things, um, uh, a tool, which allowed them to easily download and play uh, Command & Conquer Generals mods, and a mod that they would uh, buy from us. And so we got an extremely small budget and extremely small um, help from them, and I basically uh, went from there to build Midi's Crisis and Mod Toaster. See? Um, Midi's Crisis is a total conversion for uh, Command & Conquer General Zero Hour, 
and it uh, depicts a fictional battle between Israel and Syria. Um, now, the question obviously is, why the hell take this topic? Um, it's not because I have any kind of special uh, relation, and I thought it would be really cool to make a, a project about this. But the investors were doing a lot of business in Israel at the time. Um, it was a booming tech um, uh, country, a lot of good programmers there. And so they figured it was an interesting topic. We took the gig, and we basically built uh, Midi's Crisis on it. Um, now, this was actually the least bumpy road we had. We had a bunch of problems in this game, but we all made it on time, under budget, and it was a very good stamp on our portfolio. And the, uh, both the tool and the mod were finished on time, and the investors were very, uh, were very happy because it was a very fun game, worked very well, got a lot of good press. And so um, um, basically they started to take me with them on their crazy trips. Now, the first one is basically the... Uh, um, uh, us doing, like, uh, I did a bunch of trips to wrap up Midi's Crisis with the investors to Israel. And so we had a lot of um, crazy uh, adventures there, and I'll, I'll try and explain a little bit of them. But um, I always wanted to just try out everything and then just try and get the most professional stuff and try and get, you know, nitty-gritty and, and get the cool recordings. So I would literally go with a little voice recorder, and I would go to the people in Israel and uh, try and get them to record voices for us. And so now, I don't know if you're familiar with strategy games, but in strategy games it's usually stuff like uh, yes sir, acknowledged, and moving out. And so the first stuff that I got was um, very crazy, um, well actually logical, overly logical Israeli soldiers who basically were like, it makes no sense. You don't say moving out. You say, I'm going to coordinates, blah, blah, blah. I said, no, but this is a game, moving out, and the player can see where they go out. And so I got tons and tons of recordings, which is nothing but um, discussions where they're saying, this is especially stupid, this makes no sense. And so then I went to record the voices for the Syrian side. And um, I went, <laughs> we drove to a, a small Israeli Arab village, uh, I think it was Palestinian, and um, so we met some people there, and they were very nice, and uh, invited us into their homes, and uh, we got the whole Arab coffee and all this stuff, and it was uh, a lot of fun. I was just sitting there with my recorder. And so he enjoyed it so much that he started calling all his friends, and then before I knew it, the house was full with like 30 of these guys. And they had a bunch of children with them that they also wanted to record audio for us. So I figured, you know, what the hell, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have these kids record audio too. Um, now, I did have to admit afterwards to them that I couldn't use the children's audio. It would be a bit too politically incorrect if the uh, Syrian army had, like, half kids uh, going around and uh, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So, you know, it's just an, an example of, of some of the stuff we did there to get the audio. So we also, um, I got up at, like, 6 in the morning, and I went to the, um, the big mosque in Jerusalem to record some of the uh, ambience audio of the, the morning prayers. Um, we were lucky enough to have some business contacts from my father who um, got us a, a special deal to fly around, um, you know, to northern Lebanon and basically record some video and take pictures of um, Israeli and Arab villages so we could get the maps and all the, the mood and, and atmosphere, right? So it was a very, um, very interesting time, very interesting project for us to wrap up. It was very, uh, and we learned a lot from it because we, back in Holland, obviously, we recorded uh, our own unique um uh, soundtrack, and um, you know, so it, it, you know, it's got some. We we took the whole, we went the whole uh, nine yards, so to say. Let's see. So um, <clears throat> now we wanted to do something special for the release, and now I had some good contacts with uh, Demo Zone, who basically hosted us on Camp Zone in 2005. Oh, God, I'm getting old. Um, so. Um, 
so we went to uh, to Camp Stone. We got a big tent there, and where we printed all these um, these flags, and we got all our friends together who had worked on Midi's Crisis and Mod Toaster, and also the ones that were working on Angra Depression Mod, um, which is still ongoing. And um, we did a bunch of presentations there, and we wrapped up the game. Everything basically went wrong, so the presentations were horrible, and um, it was it was a big mess. It started to rain, and everything started to leak, and computers started to die. But it was still fun. Uh, yeah, at the end of the day. Um, so, but then things started to get a bit more serious. So, Iron Grip Depression started to shift gears, and um, we wanted to basically show all, be all we can be, which is another red line for us. We always want to do too much. And um, so we set up a huge website with tons of, like, fake news articles uh, to get newspapers and stuff so people get really immersed in the universe. And so at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're, you're creating so much work for yourself that you have to maintain every day. And uh, less than 1% even bothers to read it because the rest, you know, doesn't give a rat. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not going to go. Um, the rest doesn't care. And um, so we had to get rid of that, and um, we focused on less is more, which is obviously uh, something that they try and teach you in school, but you always think, ah, fuck it, you know, I can do it, no problem. Um, so what we did is we, we temporarily hooked it up into a subpage of our main company website, which also didn't work, and it was confusing as hell. And we're actually still trying to fix some of that mess, but I'll go in that um, a little bit later. Now, because we were so, so under budget, we had, like, no money, um, little bits of money. I thought, um, you know what, I'm going to be cheap, and I'm going to get some um, people to help us out in India, and um, which is my next topic, Indian Spice. Um, I spent three to four months in India. Uh, the investors at some point were like, you know, this isn't going fast enough. You should just go there and uh, spend months there, and maybe we'll open up an office there. So I was like in an adventurous mood. Fuck it, you know. Oh, sorry, again, I'm not going to. Um, figured like you know yeah sure you know let's let's do this let's go there and let's see what we can uh, what we can come up with and um, this was a very interesting uh, adventure uh, for me and us as a company as um, it was very difficult to get um, to get this Indian company that we were working with to really uh, produce the, the quality of a product that we were looking for and um, so what I really learned there is we were taking things too cheap and we were not getting the quality that we were trying to shoot for. Um, on top of that, I got sick uh, for like three uh, weeks, and at some point I was even um, doing work um, while praying to the porcelain god, if you know what I mean, <laughs> um, with the laptop, wireless, in the bathroom, you know, so food poisoning, but it, it's all part of the job. Um, so the quality wasn't really what we were looking for, and the project had a lot of problems when we released. Um, there were stability issues, there were uh, bugs, there were features that weren't working properly. It was a very, um, a very hard lesson about trying to be Pennywise dollar foolish. Um, though at the end of the day, we didn't have money. I should have scaled down the concept of the game and made it a bit more, take one or two features, do them really well, rather than trying to do it all and, and be the most awesome in the world. Um, on top of that, we also didn't do proper pre-production on our engine, um, so we chose Half-Life 2, and we had a whole, uh, the gameplay was we had uh, a group of players on one side who were the resistance, and they were playing a first-person shooter game, and then one player was playing on the other team, and he was building AI-controlled vehicles and infantry, and he was basically conquering the map, um, playing a real-time strategy, so it was real genre versus genre, and, um, 
it hadn't been done before in that form, and I really wanted to push that through. Um, but the Half-Life 2 engine was not built for it. It wasn't. Um, we got all kinds of problems with the render and uh, the rendering engine, and so we had to do so many hacks that it, it also contributed to the mess. We 90% of the work that we had in this project was technology, trying to fix technology and trying to get the technology running. We switched from the Union programmers to um, to like one guy from uh, Belgium, and he basically fixed up a lot of the stuff in this project. But at the end of the day, the project didn't have much of a future. Um, got some really good reviews, won some awards, and we got uh, a whole bunch of players. And But we had to drop it to um, to work on something uh, that would generate us some revenue, which you can't do with a mod. So the next topic I want to talk about is our first product, because this is when things started to get a little bit more uh, interesting. Um, in using a sarcasm here in terms of humble beginnings because that's not the way it was. Um, I'm going to be very honest in how this project came to be, uh, as much as I can, obviously. Um, I wanted to do something new, be all you can be, try and do something very drastic. Um, and so in 2007, we started Iron Good Warlord. And we wanted to learn uh, from the lessons we learned in the previous game. So we wanted to really work with an engine that we've worked with before. We got a very extremely low budget, and um, we only had eight months. So... Um, <clears throat> be all you can be, do something new. We had high demands in terms of the revenue that we were supposed to make for the investors. Um, and so I figured, you know what, I'm just going to go all out, but I'm going to save an all out. that They don't mix generally, but um, I found this engine on the Internet called Jake2, which was a Java port of, Quake, of the Quake2 engine, which meant you could play Quake2 in your browser, basically what Quake Live does now, um, Quake3 in your browser. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to create an Iron Grip title that would stream through your browser. Um, and this was a market that was very new. Nobody was doing it, um, apart from some Macromedia Shockwave games. Um, and so I really wanted to catch a, uh, you know, catch a lot of attention from the press. From what I did learn from my Iron Grip The Oppression Days is if you create something very wacky and new, um, uh, like we did with uh, Iron Grip The Oppression, for better or for worse, we got... Uh, full full page PC gamer spread uh, uh, reviews from them, and uh, with you know we got a lot of downloads from it for free, zero marketing budget, just for free because you're doing something interesting. The press likes to talk about it, and so I wanted to use the same mechanic for uh, Iron Grip Warlord by going through the browser and taking the gameplay was a bit more conservative because I wanted to um, you know the browser first person shooter and really wanted to push that. Um, that failed. Um, the problem was that the, the Jake 2 engine wasn't strong enough to support what we really wanted to do. Let's see if I'm going to go. Hey, look at that. Are we already there? Mm. Um, basically, the the uh, the Jake 2 engine wasn't strong enough to do what really what I really wanted to do. So we did a bunch of uh, of tests, and it didn't really work out. Now I had like a month's worth of work on it out of eight months, which means one eighth of your development time gone. So I basically ported it to uh, Quake 2 standalone, um, which makes it very tricky because you just lost your press edge. Um, and uh, but I figured, okay, screw it. I'm just going to up the uh, amounts of bad guys that you're playing against. So we're going to take the gameplay that we know was kind of fun in Angry the Oppression, and we're going to learn from it, make it better, and just quadruple the amount of bad guys in it. That'll give us the press edge because nobody was doing that stuff at the time. Um, and um, so the point is, is, you never try and throw away the work um, that you previously did. You always try and, and build on top of that, which I think is the why it 
eventually worked out. Now the problem was that I wanting to be cheap because we didn't have the um, just didn't have the money. I didn't license the Quake 2 engine from id Software. Uh, the idea was to license it just before uh, that we were going to sell it. And the website did software basically said, okay, it's going to be 10 grand um, to license it, and um, Quake 3 was like $250,000, and so we couldn't afford that. And so um, we went with Quake 2, and we were going to pay the, the fee at the end, which is where we, we would be able to get the money from the investors. Um, now, the problem was that all of a sudden, like four months later, um, it changes their website, and uh, Quake 3 was 10, 10 grand now just like Quake 2. We were having a world of hurt um, in terms of the engine. It was giving us pain. It was very brutal and bloody. And it gives me sleepless nights still. But um, So we basically had to rebuild all the stuff that um, since Quake 2 had been put into first-person shooters in Quake 2. So we were reinventing the wheel. And now that the price had dropped uh, for Quake 3, which when we called it, they said, was always the case, but they just hadn't updated their website, um, I just felt screwed, in a sense. Um, but it was my own stupid mistake. I should have contacted it right away, um, asked them immediately, tried to get, you know, get a firm. Um, you got to minimize the things that can go wrong, in a sense. And I should have realized that. So what to do? Now, what we did is we basically ported everything to Quake 3. Um, it took us a lot of time. We had a, a, an outsourcing company we were working with. Um, it's time from the Ukraine. And... Those two things didn't mix well. Our Western European team and the Ukrainian team, it was just uh, um, the vibe didn't go well. The, the development differences, let me put it that way. And so I had to get rid of the entire uh, half of the team, you know, at month six. So then I had two more months to deliver. I just ported to Quake 3 and had two more months to deliver, and uh, I just got rid of half the team. Um, so things were going really swell. And um, basically, I had to, we had to redo a lot of our work. Uh, I went to the investors and basically said, okay, we had some problems. This is what went wrong, and this is what I need. I need an extra four months. And um, because our investors, they, they went through our, our process, and they know that everything can go wrong, and a lot of things will go wrong, and the, the trick is to deal with it. You always have to just deal with it and make sure that you, you choose, you make the right choices, and you build on what you've previously built. You learn from that. You don't try and do everything again from scratch. Um, that's the mistake I'm, I just made a year later, but I'll, I'll be there in, uh, in a bit. Um, so they gave us a chance. We wrapped up the game. And so, um, Swiss cheese to feta. There you go. Um, I was working in Switzerland at the time for a month, seven, eight months, something like that, um, during this time when we were wrapping up this project. And then we moved... We finally decided, the investors said, okay, one of the investors was American Greek. He had um, some buildings that we could go into um, for free but in, if we would relocate to Greece. So I figured, pocket, oh, sorry. Um, I figured, you know, a new adventure. Why not? So I went to Greece, um, and when we were there, we were going to wrap up this project. And now we, had, uh, we made another uh, nice little mistake, which is we released the game, and um, we had no marketing budget. So it's pretty tough selling a game without a marketing budget, I'll tell you that. And so um, we released the game, and we tried to pitch it. We got a lot of luck. We got full on, on File Planet put us on the front page. We got a bunch of, uh, of good reviews. They, again, uh, the press did pick it up, um, good reviews, but the conversion rates were not, um, were not 
very good in a sense. Well, the conversion rates were good, but we, don't, we weren't getting the exposure that we needed. So we, we got the 6 to 10% conversion rate, um, which is higher than average for indie games, but um, we just didn't reach the, the amount that we that required. So I ended up having like 3,000 sales or something like that. And um, and that's not very good, by the way. Um, and so, um, and Steam basically said no. Uh, we were going to distribute on Steam. And Steam was just releasing Left 4 Dead 1 at the time. And so we think that at the time they basically just focused all their efforts on that and blocked every other uh, release because they didn't want to, Valve is a fairly small team and they didn't want to uh, put, you know, attention on other stuff at the time. My theory, I don't know if it's whatever happened. But um, we had dealings with Valve for a while. We had some good understandings with them, but they denied us. So um, after crying for a couple nights, um, we uh, moved on. And uh, it was very tough. Let's see. Okay, so eventually um, we had a Greek sales guy, and he's a very good sales uh, guy. He was actually a weapon salesman before he uh, started working for us, legit weapon salesman, so he's not like Taliban or anything. Um, and uh, basically he contacted Steam again, and he uh, wooed them over, and they were very excited. They played the game, and they were like, this is awesome. And so they put it on Steam, and with zero marketing budget, my, uh, my revenue tenfolded like overnight. Um, just by being on Steam, uh, on the latest release category, on the front page, a first-person shooter, which is traditionally fitting within Steam's, uh, um, you know, user base, uh, and it's a cooperative game, and so it just, like, it went through the roof. And so this was a good spurt of uh, a little bit of success, when otherwise the investors would probably have said, you know, you guys are making too many mistakes here. Um, but at the end of the day, the investors don't really care too much about the mistakes you make. Um, at least from my experience, um, and I've done a lot of investment rounds in Israel and in the United States, what they really all, at the end of the day, what they really, really, really care about is if you can deal with the problems that you inevitably will face. If you can pick it up, you can, you know, whatever happens, deal with it and move on and then still get the job done. Even if it's a little over budget or a little over time, you can't have a massive clusterfuck and then, oh, sorry, I'm going to have to... Um, you can't have a, a, a massive, you know, that everything starts, you know, the roof starts crumbling down. Um, okay, so that was released. I was still in Greece and um, basically uh, enjoying the hot weather, which in the summer is unbearable when you're in Athens. Um, it, it just, anyways, um, we started a flagship product. And yet again, um, I know, yet, yet again and again and again, more humble beginnings. I said, you know what, I want to do something really awesome and new and, um, you know, just, like, be all you can be yet again. Um, so I figured, I found this uh, software called uh, Unity 3D, which is a, a browser-based plugin. It's actually an engine which allows you to stream pretty much next-gen games through the browser. Um, and um, I figured, you know what, this browser thing, I dropped it when I was doing Warlord. I don't want to make the same mistake twice. Um, this is it. You know, we have to get into this business, and this is our way to showcase our universe. We really wanted to get players using our universe as much as possible and being there on the website. We want to have a direct relation with our customers, not through a publisher, not through anything else, so that what we could have is we could have all these encyclopedias, Wikipedias, all these galleries, and all this, like, background information on, on this, like, crazy uh, elephant thingy with uh, hair and um, that dude over there, and all this other stuff that we built and um, just get your customer base around you, like a Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, just really uh, keep it all in one area. 
And um, so the web, web games are the best for that, um, for a startup, because it, it just allows you to have a very direct relation with your customers and it allows you to uh, experiment and just throw stuff out there. So yet again, I got a very short uh, development time and a uh, low budget. Um, What's well, a lot higher budget now than um, than what we had back then, but the budgets were uh, a bit higher. But the, the, we had to basically develop and release within a year. Now, you can't create a game in a year, in a sense, of that scale. And so the trick was I tried to be smart yet again, um, <clears throat> and I figured um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it so that the, the game. Uh, I can build it in portions, which is another reason why the web is so great. You can either build it in, por build it in portions through the web, or you can use Steam for that. Now, Steam is re recently released, which I didn't know, um, well, they didn't inform me, because I'm not important. Um, they released the micropayment model now through Steam, so you can uh, release your game and then start selling DLC, downloadable content. Content. I probably would have gone with that in hindsight, but I think that, that this is you know, a really cool choice that we did. Um, so we went with Unity, we, and the idea was to create a strong basis and then rapidly expand from that. So I put all our, our um, eggs in a basket of tools. We created, you know, Blizzard-style tools in terms of map editor, in terms of unit editor. We can build anything with our tools now on top of Unity 3D. Um, though, um, and the engine was middleware because I was sick and tired that 95% of my company is programmers. Uh, while the purpose of my company is to basically create our own universe and world and IP and create, be creative and create games. And so it almost seems like our company is just a tech company, like another Epic or something like that. Um, so I wanted to use middleware. Um, the thing with middleware is that it's wonderful and it allows you to build something very quickly. But once you try and do something that's out of the box, it quickly breaks. And that's what we had, uh, what we experienced with Unity. The, because it was using um, um, a programming language, language which wasn't really fast, um, we couldn't get the calculations per second that we, that we needed in order to do a real-time game uh, in the browser of that scale. So there you have it. Yet again, four months into it, my tech guys have really, you know, I didn't have enough time to do proper pre-production, so we do it, you know, we'll wing it, you know, right as we're, like, building the game, we're going to, you know, check up the, uh, the engine software. And then so our Cortex basically did the test and basically said, Vince, we can do it, but it'll take us like eight months extra because we're going to have to build it like they did back in the 90s. And so I figured that's not such a good idea. Um, so as a designer, you have to be very designer. You have to be very versatile because all these problems, whether it's Warlord or whether it's Marauders, um, I always solve the problems by adjusting the design. Um, which is very important. You can't you can't be too anal about okay. This is what the design we set up too easy to do. You have to be able to take okay. We can't do this for the money and time and something went wrong. How can we make solve this problem now? Anyways, what can we do? What can we create? Um, you know, what is the solutions? I always believe that limitations bring out the best in people. They bring out the creativity. So the best stuff that we've ever did has always been when we've had you know our backs to the wall and you know the 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 firing squad was just about to fire, and we were like, you know, this is actually a pretty cool idea, um, and it solves our issues. You have a lot of prerequisites to work with. Oh, your idea has to, like, not screw over all the work you've done for the last six months. Um, your idea has to be really cool and has to be something you can build in a month, which is, you know, and all this stuff starts to limit your, um, your choice. And, but eventually it brings out some very cool things, and this is what we did with this game. Um, it's supposed to be completely real-time, and so I made it something completely different, and I think actually the design that we had now um, is a lot better. 
um, than what we set out to do. So what I generally find out is that before I, I undertake a big project, um, I write up this huge design about, you know, this awesome, awesomeness of awesomeness. And um, what happens is that you can't really do that. Um, four months into it, you realize, like, oh, fuck, it's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to, to build this in the time frame that I have. Or something in the software, something went wrong. And then you have to scale down. And so um, if there's one thing that our company is pretty good at, it's, it's just adjust very dynamically overnight being able to adjust into what we call overhauls. And then within, um, within the company, it's known as the Vincification Overhaul um, uh, Simplification Plans that actually make things more complex. Well, that's what they say, but I don't agree with that. Um, but anyways, back to the awesome project. Um, the idea was that we're, we're going to build a strong core start, which is why I mentioned we were doing a lot of <coughs> sorry um, editors. So we focused a lot on the editors, and it's very important to have good tools. Uh, I really noticed that because having a very good tool set allows you to very easily adjust, and this really saved this project because, yet again, halfway through the product, um, shit hits the fan. Um, we can't build it on the engine. We can't. Uh, the engine isn't fast enough. Uh, we can't do this. And then all of a sudden, I make a, a you know, a, a quick change in the design. And then, you know, four months later, when you get the first alpha uh, test, you're like, oh man, this is not that fun. Um, I thought it was going to be the most fun thing the world has ever seen, and it's not really. So what are you going to do? Um, adjust it again, and adjust it again. And so we've been in this project three times already now. Um, and now we're going to go open beta in January, and I think we're there. Um, but it's been, a, it's been a very horrible road for a lot of us, and I'm sure that uh, I'm very happy, actually, that a lot of our core programmers are not in Holland because they probably would have strangled me by now. Um, but there was a lot of efficiency problems that we had working remote because traveling a lot, we met a lot of good people, and so we hired a lot of good people all over the globe, and that was a bit of the problem because we, we, we work through um, Scrum, we use a Scrum methodology, and we have all our development tools and setup, but everyone works in different time zones, everyone logs in, we Skype call each other every day, um, the project manager is in the United States, then the core engine programmer is in Israel, uh, really awesome, that's like eight hours difference. So there's a lot of like efficiency problems that we, that we had. And so uh, being in Greece, uh, and Greece basically crumbling down, and nobody wanting to move to Greece, I was eventually at some point there having a whole office with three people while 25 people were working from home. And so I'm not going to pay for an office and then only have three people there. Um, so we decided to move also because uh, the Americans that we were going to ship there, they got their visas denied. Um, <clears throat> basically, um, and then um, the Dutch Game Garden basically conned us into going to the Hoch. <laughs> <laughs> No, basically, uh, Dutch Game Garden, uh, along with the uh, Provincie Utrecht, really helped us into uh, relocating to Holland. I really want to go to Holland because I believe that Holland has one of the brightest futures in, in Europe. We have one of the best infrastructures here, and we have a great talent pool uh, of a knowledge um, society. Uh, the mindset of the Dutch is also very innovative, and we're good traders. So it's all, you know, the good attributes that you need. Uh, plus, Holland is very small. So, you know, in Greece, it took me, like, um, three hours of driving to get out of the city. And in Holland, you'd probably get the other end of Holland, and in Germany by then. So um, it means that you're hiring people. It's very easy. Uh, they can just live in Rotterdam and work in Utrecht and just take the train every day. Um, so, you, you you know, the problem with the United States, obviously, is that you find the best people, and then one is in Connecticut, and the other is in Los Angeles, and the other is in Washington, and the other is there. And there's like six hours' time difference in just the continent. 
And so you're going to have to relocate them, like, you know, 12 hours from where they live. It's, 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 it's a pain in the ass. So um, Holland was going to be our new uh, headquarters. And so um, the awesome guys at Dutch Game Garden are so amazing. They helped us uh, um, relocate and set up, and they really uh, helped us make the right connections and um, so that we could make this move. And so we moved two months ago. And um, now we're all set up, and uh, we're running in, uh, in Utrecht with, uh, with 10 people on in-house. And I really want to try and expand in-house only, so I don't really want to work remote anymore unless I'm going to um, set up micro offices there, which is the, the thing with the current people that are working for us overseas. Um, if they continue to work out really well, I will open micro offices in, in their countries to, to get them together there. Um, now... Okay, let's see. Um, so we're actually also in the uh, in, in the uh, Dutch Game Garden building in Utrecht op Neude, and it's uh, very nice. Um, lessons learned. Well, there's a lot, and there's a lot of stuff that you guys are going to say. Um, yeah, Vince, what are you an idiot? You should have learned after you did you know wrong the first time. Um, the problem is that it's always a situation. The situation is always different. And you have to push because the expectations are very high, the pressure is very high. So you have to take risks. And when you take risks, you win some, you lose some. It's always the same, uh, same thing. And so in our case, we won a lot of stuff, but we also lost a lot of stuff. And that's a story you generally don't see when you see um, the products that are out there or all the works that we've done and through all the artists that we've gone through that have done so many designs and artworks for us. And we finally have our star team. I've, I'm, I'm very happy with the team that we have now. But it was a hell of a road to get there. Um, and we have so much, you know, so long to go, um, so much more to, to do. There, what, if I were to summarize at some points that I would say uh, uh, to the people here that are, are willing to start their own uh, company, um, don't let your ego get in the way. If there's one thing I did wrong in the, in, the, in the first year, I was like kind of toying around with these projects with the uh, investors, is that whenever you build something, it's very hard when someone criticizes it, whether they say, this is ugly or this sucks or this, you know, or I'm sorry, I don't think this is very good. Uh, no matter how they present it, it's always, it hurts you because it's like your little baby. You created it, you spent a year building it, and then someone just, you know, basically uh, urinated on it. And um, <clears throat> the problem is that everything everyone says to you, whether they're right or not, you should basically see what is behind it. You see, when I hear a lot of people saying, uh, I was playing your game and after like two hours I got bored, that means that there's something in, in the, if I hear that many times, or even if I hear it once, I'm trying, I, I go and investigate, basically. There's something in the flow that's wrong. It's breaking after a couple hours. So maybe there's too much repetition. Maybe there's not enough new content after a while. Um, but it's very important to just get rid of your defensive attitude because that's the first thing that people do. Like they say, oh, I think your game's boring. Oh, no, it's not because I, yesterday I met a guy and he thought it was awesome. But that doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. What really matters is this guy thought it was boring. And it doesn't mean you, can, you should try and cater your game to everyone. Um, but you should really try and look, you know, get rid of the defensive attitude. It's only going to uh, hold you back. Um, I always say uh, to people in-house and, and outside of uh, the company, um, if, I, if I want compliments, I'll call my mom. Um, uh, what I really need is I really need to know what is wrong with it, and then I can try and figure out how to improve. Because I'm very ambitious. I really want us to make the prettiest and the awesome stuff. And the only way to get there is to basically be able to absorb criticism and um, try again, try again and again and again and again. Um, a couple things. I wouldn't outsource coding, ever. 
Um, and that's not because other people don't know what they're doing. They really know what they're doing. But there's a couple of reasons why you should never outsource coding. And, and one of them, obviously, is, is that you have no idea what kind of a mess you're going to get. You could have the next John Carmack, or you could have a guy who's going to make a complete mess of your code base, and it's uh, unrepairable. I've had three of my projects in the past, some of them I haven't even listed here, that have a really messed up code base, and you really don't want to go in there anymore. Um, and another one is that your core knowledge of your company is what's really valuable. It's the people, but also the core uh, knowledge. So if the coding is done by an outsourced company, then you're just a middleman. So um, there's no real value to your company other than your IP, um, which hopefully should do a lot, uh, you know, should work very well. One of the problems we had with when we worked with India is that our entire coder team was Indian. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. There's nothing, you know, in general wrong with that other than the fact that at some point they were like, hmm, okay. So basically we have these guys by the balls, and um, I can just keep upping the price. And at some point, I was paying, like, double prices that you pay for, for a Western crew. And, you know, you get a lot of that kind of stuff uh, going on. And um, so I, coding is something so uh, so fragile that I would always keep it in-house in, in, your, in your company and always keep it to yourself. Don't give it to, to any outsource, any other companies. It's basically what you've, you've, um, what you've been putting your money in. Um, pre-production, very important. Uh, you run out of time, I know, and your investor is going to say, you've only got this, you've only got that. But every, every day you spend in pre-production, you probably shave off a month of development cost. It's the most important thing ever. Um, I would, what I always did, or, you know, other than the times that I didn't have the time to do it, mistakes, um, is basically uh, concepting your, your gameplay. If you want to create something completely new, Right? Um, how are you going to know if it's fun? There's a reason all the big companies are big, building the same games over and over and over again and taking just small steps. It's because it's proven to be fun. If they can shave off four months or five months of pre-production. They can shave off all the risks, and all the marketing people can tell them all wonderful stories about the sales because there's so many people playing Counter-Strike, and so if you make Counter-Strike, there's a big market. Um, so the thing that you can do is, um, I'd say, just uh, as, a, as a startup company, don't ever build something that's been built before. Um, try and give it a new, you know, a new twist. Try and do something like, um, um, if, if you really like first-person shooters, uh, you don't have to build a, a Peggle. You really don't. Build a first-person shooter, but try and do something crazy with it, like Portal, for instance. Um, and But concept it. You know, take a, take a, a UDK or whatever and quickly hack job. Don't even care about if the code's clean or if it's sellable or not. Just so that you can, you can prove and say this is fun and this works. Um, this is a mistake I've been making over and over and over again. And hopefully I learned my lesson now, but, you know, I'm a very stubborn guy. Um, I would say, um, <clears throat> I would localize, localize your office. Uh, I don't know if you, you guys work as, as, uh, as internationally as, as we do, but localizing communication is, is everything. Uh, I would follow the scrum process, if I would, uh, development process, if I would make a, an advice, because daily stand-ups of five minutes can, can just, um, just five minutes of like, hey, what are you doing, what are, you know, what, what's working, um, it can save so much time in terms of like miscommunication. Uh, a lot of times I thought I, I spec'd it out, and the technical document is eight pages about a very small freaking feature, and the programmer just figured it out. I would just do it like this, and then uh, a month of work gone through the window. Um, and so communication is key. Um, I also uh, have uh, recently experimented with uh, doing coder rotations. So um, if you have four programmers, one guy is the AI guy, the other guy is the engine guy, then you have a guy who does game core, um, that's great. 
Wonderful. That's their core responsibility. But if they don't check each other's code and the uh, AI guy says, hey, you know what? Uh, screw you guys. I'm going away. I'm going to work for Epic. Then you just like, you have no idea how this guy built his code. It's his language. It's his, the way he did it. And your other two programs can't catch up because they have no idea how that code works. So they waste two months trying to learn it, trying to catch up on the mistakes. So um, code rotation, very important. Um, in terms of managing people, uh, I've, I've made every mistake there is uh, to be made. Um, and uh, one of the things I noticed in, in what we empl employ at the moment is that uh, – Okay. So one of the things that, that we employ at the moment is I, I don't have a nine-to-five mentality. In our office, people can come in when they want. Um, what I demand from them is basically that they meet their milestones. But I'm not going to nitpick on, oh, you're five minutes late uh, past nine, nine-to-five or something. There are programs that come in at 12, and they work till eight, nine, ten. Um, but they just function better that way then why should I try and go 19th century industrial revolution? And, I, you know, you have to be at nine and you there you go away at five. Um, it's not, it doesn't work well, especially not in this business. Um, so I don't, I don't get caught up on the petty little things. I just really focus on are they meeting their milestones? Is their stuff quality and are they meeting their milestones? Um, last but not least, I'd say uh, um, take risks. Hard work, take risks, uh, don't really give up. Just you run into a roadblock and then you really want to give up because you don't see the way to do it. Try and think an extra day. Try and get creative with it. There's always a way. There always is. If there's anything I've, like, I haven't told you many of the uh, intricate little secrets because then I'd have to kill you. But um, is that there's always a way. There always is a way to, to fix something, to get out of a situation, and therefore take risks, be creative, and... Um, don't give up. That's uh, that's it. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Vincent. Um, we're running kind of low, uh, low on time, so uh, we have still some time for one question. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the budget you? Uh, you used for it, and how it was divided. Uh, was it only personnel uh, manpower? Um, our current budget for uh, uh, Marauders, which is the web game we're building, um, about at the moment I've used up all the money on development. <laughs> so at the moment I'm, uh, but that was the idea. I was going to get my marketing budgets on top of that. Um, marketing budgets go into the hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, very easily. Um, and so we're making a free-to-play online MMO, and we will be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, over the course of two, three months, every two, three months. So we're doing it in phases. So we have a standard marketing budget that we're going to be spending, which is like 20 k a month. And then we will spend every three to four months like 100000 or 200000 to try and push to make it uh, an extra push. And we're trying to time that in with expansion events, like we're going to do a gra you know graphics phase two or you know a new unit pack release with 80 new units, and so we're going to release that and put a big marketing push in terms of marketing money. Um, it depends on uh, the development budget. Really depends on what kind of game you're making. Uh, our game, as you can see here, uh, looks very nice, but it's not uh, modern warfare. It's not uh, completely next gen. So uh, the majority of my costs are programmers. Um, uh, artists um, are, are not really that big of a cost. We have 2D artists that are full-time employed that are constantly making universe stuff, um, and uh, a couple of 3D artists and texture artists, uh, one art director, and then everyone else is programmer. So we're, uh, that's, that's the way our budgets are divided at the moment. Then we do it by later. Applause for Vincent Vergeel.
Thank you.